Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest has a passion for storytelling, and in this case, a story from the 80s. Writer-director Richard Bakewell is a veteran cinematographer and television camera operator whose new film, Roswell Delirium, takes us back to the 1980s, when the U.S. is hit by a wave of nuclear attacks and after the fallout, those who remain pretend like everything is normal, even though they are all experiencing radiation poisoning. For everything about Roswell Delirium, go to lightforcepictures.com and you can follow the film on Facebook and Instagram. And Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, what uh, what got into you to write a book about the <laughs> 80s and radiation and you have some interesting elements to it, so I'm going to shut up and let you explain how you ended up making this film, and it's making the rounds of all the festivals these days, the film festivals. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Like, we have a screen in two weeks in Chandler, and then we're back in L.A. in February, and we won like 19 awards so far, so people are really embracing the film, uh, which is great to hear. And, um, you know, the film really took place like for me, like the writing and during the pandemic, because I was bored and I wrote a short film, you know, with kind of a small concept of aliens. And then I went to the Salton Sea for a day and it was like 113 degrees. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrible here and it smells so bad. But there's all these beautiful, like, like artifacts left behind and broken down buildings. And there's like a swing set in the water. People that left all this archy stuff behind and kind of like, uh, you know, it has made it look really this artistic and it gave me a lot of ideas for my story. And then I was like, as I was writing the film, I did like 17 drafts. I'm like, you know, I really want to do something with the eighties. That was my time. And the film is really a love letter to the eighties. There's a lot of like, you know, Easter eggs, there's uh movie quotes, song lyrics, you know, it's kind of tied in there. And uh, the film really just, took on a whole new life. Um, you know, with COVID, I kind of use it as a parallel of my story where, you know, this big thing happened, the world shut down for a while. And that's kind of what happens in this film. It's like these nuclear attacks happen. Everything kind of gets destroyed. Half of the world is blown up in the U.S. And then all of a sudden, you know, people go back to normal. Like it never happened and they don't want to talk about it. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's like, remember we had to wear masks. We couldn't get groceries. And it's very similar <laughs> to the pandemic. But, yeah. you know, it's like it, it so that all these little things kind of inspired the story. And really, I was just uh, the more I wrote it, the more I was like, God, I really wanted to put this Easter egg in there. But I got to pull back a little bit. But it was just, you know, really just a love letter to the 80s. And it's like something that I'm really proud of. Now, you, of course, slipped into that jargon about Easter eggs. You want to explain to our audience what that means, actually, for those who are not film connoisseurs when they're watching your film? Sure. So an Easter egg is kind of like when you make a reference of, like, another movie, another song. Um, you know, like, there's a the, the first, in the first, I think the third shot of the film, there's a shot of a ham radio. And yes. on a ham radio, <laughs> you know, it's like a very old school way of communicating in case something happens. And um, there's a, a a number on there. It says eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine, which if anyone knows the 80s song, Jenny, it's a song called eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. So it's kind of like a little Easter egg to kind of show the world and the audience like this is the, what you're going to be, you know, <laughs> embarking on the journey. And there's things that, you know, they say in the movie, like, 
Uh, there's a moment where um, the one girl, uh, Kylie Levine, plays Mayday, and you know she's like, "Don't call me Shirley," and that's from Airplane. And it's a little movie, you know, reference back right. to, to that era. So there's all these little things, and there's a lot of nostalgia, but it's, it's plays as real dialogue as well. So it's just kind of hidden in there. Now, in defense of ham operators, ham radio are still going strong. Ham radios are still going strong. And, uh, oh, they are. And it's funny oh, yeah. because when, when we posted the trailer, uh, I had all of these ham radio people start like reposting the trailer and breaking <laughs> it down and, and be like, you can never talk to anyone out in space on this frequency. And I'm like, it's <laughs> exactly. a movie. You know, it's a movie. It's not a documentary, you know. So people, there's liberties you got to take. You can't just like keep everything factual. It's, it's a movie. And their numbers are important. For right. a reason, if you look at it, not because of, you know, what you think it can right. do. Well, they'll probably go see the film because they are ham operators. They want to see the equipment. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I had I had one guy, I think his name's Stephen King, and he helped, um, Scott King, he helped me with a couple of things, the ham radios, because there's a lot to it, the, the, even to make them work and do certain things. And, you know, a lot of them are just like kind of like props. And we had to do like visual effects to even get them to do certain things. You know, they just they didn't work anymore. So. That's funny. So I'm just thinking it'd be funny if you had, uh, in addition to uh, radiation poisoning, you also incorporated COVID. So that way it'd be, uh, but it would be contemporary, but at the same time, the 80s. So you were, you're mixing metaphors and mixing generations. Maybe that's your next film. We can talk about that later. It's okay. So, sure. No, I mean, the people are always, they're asking me for a sequel already. Like all, all the kids <laughs> in the movie want to do a sequel. And I'm like, let this one go out to the world first, and then we'll all start writing something. We'll see what comes of it, you know. Right. Uh, now, a trick, too, is that in terms of your casting, because you not only were doing a film about the 80s, but you were casting icons from the 80s. Oh, yeah. No, I, I kind of took the Force Awakens Star Wars approach, you know, where we have all these new characters kind of like leading the way of the story, you know, the, the 80s journey. And then I really wanted to sprinkle all of like these 80s stars in the film to make you feel like you're back in the 80s. You know, we had the first time you see anybody is Lisa Welchor from The Facts of Life, which plays a school teacher. And and every character from the 80s is kind of a reveal. It's like we don't know who it is at first. And then we kind of like reveal, oh, there's Dee Wallace in, in the restaurant, you know, and there's there's Sam Jones. So, and then there's Anthony Michael Hall and the Reggie Villa Johnson. It was very important just to have that feeling because you know when you watch an 80s movie there's a certain tone there's a certain feel about it and i really wanted these people to you know be they're very strong actors but so it's not like a b movie where there's a lot of bad acting it's like it's all very t taken seriously and they deliver some great performances and you know a lot of them have already won like you know d wallace has won four awards and lisa won awards at some film festivals for their acting so you know it's really just like an 80s love letter with these 80 stars that you know it was like no one has done that before you, like usually you see a movie it's 180 star with all these new people and new action stars but like here i wanted to have like five people to really this you know say this is an 80s film and this is what it's all about you know going back to the 80s and usually people when they do a, a different generation it gets too campy and they it's not it's not played straight so there there's that as well did the actors know that you were serious about this and that they knew it from the start? They got the concept right away? I think everyone knew uh, about a year and a half ago when we did the table read. Um, we, you know, we all we got most of the people together, all the all the kids and some of the, the adults. 
And the script is very serious. It's, you know, it's, there's a lot, there's, you know, it's about like the eighties and there's nostalgia, but like this, you know, the second half of the film is really uh, like about the decay and the heartache of these things that are happening. Like, and there's a lot of loss that happens. So at the table read, you know, it was read with, you know, there wasn't very humor, much humor happening. So, you know, like towards the end, we get to the final scene and everyone's looking for the last scene in their script and they can't find it except for the two main actors in the film. And they're, and I'm like, they're, they're like, I can't find this. The last pages aren't here. I said, I want you just to watch the performance because they're going to like, they're going to do, they're going to act part of it out in the table read and you're going to see what it's about. And it's really, a, it's very serious at the end. It gets very serious. And everyone knew like, this isn't campy. And even during the making of there's, you know, there's a lot of humor that happens during a making of a movie. And then in the edit, you know, we had to really dial back a lot of the comedy because then it starts to feel campy. And right. it's like, I wanted to feel very natural, like, and the light humor where you kind of like chuckle, but you're not like in tears laughing. So there's that, but like everyone knew it's a very serious movie. When you did the table read, was the table from the eighties too? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we, we rented, uh, this this place and it was not from the 80s but um you know we did have you know everyone there and they were just so excited to, to talk about the wardrobe what am i going to be wearing from the 80s you know i, I can't bet. wait to have you know my outfits and what what are they going to be like and i'm like well you talk to the customer you know you talk to her and she'll take care of you and you know we'll figure it out were you optimistic that you could get these actors because of your vision you wanted to create a uh, partly nostalgic, but par also a story in and of itself and also strong acting. So were you optimistic that you would get these actors from that yeah. era? You know, I, I was, I was always optimistic in the beginning and in the, in the beginning it was, came with a lot of rejections. Uh, no one really wanted to be the first person to say yes. You know, it's like when you have a movie where you have an unknown director who the world doesn't know that well, uh, and you have a sci-fi like the word sci-fi seems to scare a lot of people for some reason. They just don't want to get on board with sci-fi. They feel like, oh, it's going to be like the sci-fi channel and kind of cheesy and bad effects and, you know, whatever Sharknado. That's what they people think of nowadays. <laughs> so I really had to sell people on the concept. So I, I you know, my, myself and then Larissa, another producer on the film, we worked daily to like talk to people the, the agents, the managers to even like consider the film. And, you know, once we got like Sam Jones and D Wallace on board, it all just kind of came together, you know, and then we got Reggie and Lisa and Anthony Michael Hall, but like, it was not an easy task right away. It took, you know, months of getting people to say yes to it. Yeah. It's almost like starting instead of at a, you went to L and then you worked your way backwards because once <laughs> you signed L you could get a, B, C, D, E, et cetera. So. Oh, yeah, because like I said, nobody wanted to be first. Everyone was scared. Like, well, who else is involved in the project? And I'm right. like, oh, these people. And they're like, well, I don't know who they are. And <laughs> the cast was so new. And so it's like, you know, once we could say Sam Jones and D. Wallace, it's like, oh, you have some credibility now. You don't have just, oh. you know, run-of-the-mill actors. You have some people who have been around for a while. And then everybody else just, you know, like we talked to Lisa's manager. And within like, I think, 30 hours, we had a contract signed, ready to go. It was like that quick. So it is quick. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier. I couldn't let it go. You said something that I hadn't heard in 30 years or maybe more, which was the Salton Sea. I hadn't, I know it exists, <laughs> yet I haven't heard that word or those words in probably 30 years. So it's interesting you were out there. And when you decided to put the film together, 
How much was on location? How much was on a set? Well, we only shot at two sets. Uh, uh, the, the, the first four days of filming was at a classroom, like two days were at a classroom set. And the second was at a hospital set. Uh, the, there's this place out in Canoga Park called Remit Studios. And they have all these like sets. And, you know, it was really helpful because we, we had a, a high school we were going to film at. But because of all like Uvalde and all the school shootings that were happening, people were just like, we can't have any filming right now. It's, you know, we, we need to like worry about our security measures. So sure. we found this place ahead, you know, this everything we needed. And then our production designer, Molly Thomas, did an amazing job by bringing the classroom to life because, you know, it had a chalkboard and desks mm -hmm. and these little windows. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't feel like what I remember as a school. And then her and her team came in. And then, like, I remember day one, I'm like, this is not the location we we signed up for, which you, I mean, you brought you brought this class to the 80s. I mean, it feels like we're back in the 80s now. And I felt, OK, now it feels believable. It feels like we're really in, the, in a classroom. And that's how it was for the hospital, too. And um, but the rest of the film was all on location. And we filmed at a bunker, the Salton Sea, this airplane crash site. Uh, we turned uh, my uh, my producer's house, Glenn and Larissa, we turned their house into the 80s house. And then we had, you know, Molly <laughs> come in and put brown wallpaper on the walls to give it that wood texture, you know, put in this like giant massive TV, you know, from the 80s, a tube TV and really took their house over and the garage. Their garage became the home base for the ham radio stations. And, um, you know, so it was a lot of like moving parts, you know, we're at a diner one day, we're at like, you know, this kind of makeshift space rock area until we could actually film out in that way in New Mexico. So there's a lot of locations that were just, you know, traveling and only like two, like I said, two sets. That was it. The rest were all real. Well, the movie is Roswell Delirium. So were you out at Roswell at all? Uh, I was not there for this, but I had someone go out there and film a little bit for a day. Uh, just to kind of get a sense of what could we really use for the movie that would make sense. And after they came back and they talked about, you know, they, they got some shots of some diners and I felt like all of the, the Roswell delirium sign, I mean, the Roswell signs in town, uh, were too modern. I'm like, you know, it feels like this wouldn't have been made back in the eighties. So I, I think we're just gonna like skip showing signage. Uh, but we did have a couple of drone teams go out to New Mexico and film ship rock, which is kind of like what we call space rock in the movie to, and went out there and got some amazing footage. So how long did the film take to produce or to film? We shot the film over 23 days. We filmed for three weeks in August and then we took uh, three months down because in the film, a lot of the actors like Ashton, Ari, and Kylie have all these prosthetics because of the radiation burns they get in the movie. Right. So we couldn't have them out like at the Salton Sea or the desert with all these prosthetics because it would just melts off their face. So we filmed three weeks in August and then filmed for the last week in December when it was colder. But then it got really cold. So I was like, oh, and now it's raining. So all <laughs> these things, you know, but like it, the, the beauty was... When we filmed at the Salt in the Sea, it was like the perfect day. The weather was perfect. The sun was out and we got this the most like magical stuff. We filmed it for six hours and everything was just like this has to be in the movie. That's going to be. And and like there's there's stuff that's not in the trailer because I'm like, it's so important, but it's so visually breathtaking. I'm like, I can't wait for people to see it you know, on screen. It's just it's so powerful. So you were writer and director. Who was your cinematographer? 
my cinematographer was this wonderful DP named Carter Ross. Uh, I remember I met him about a year and a half ago and I loved his work. I saw a lot of his, you know, his reel and his, and his, uh, website and immediately he, he just got it. Like he, him and I talked briefly like through emails and then we met in person. He had this whole lookbook put together based on everything that I told him, how I wanted to kind of feel like to have that warmth of ET and that like orange kind of warmth, you know, in the movie and then how the second half should have kind of more, more of a bluer tint so that it kind of represents a, a decay and a desaturation of color. And, I mean, he did a fantastic job, him and, and the camera and lighting team. Uh, I mean, I'm just so happy. And, and, you know, we we talked about, like, the look of the film. And we and he also uh, suggested, why don't we use, like, these old Russians like glass uh for the movie these lomos for like the 80s feel so in the in the 80s we he filmed it with these lomo super speeds and then everything in the present day is shot with like cook s4s to kind of give it a vintage look and i mean he did a fantastic job and that's all i hear from everybody is the cinematography is so great you know everything is great and i'm like well it had to be you know it's like i i come from that background so i know how things should look and a lot of independent movies, you see they're all filmed on, you know, on the shoulder, handheld, and it's very shaky. And I'm like, no, we had, you know, we had a, a dolly with a boom, and we had a jib, and we had Steadicam for five days. And because I'm like, the film has to look a certain way. It's sci-fi, and it has to feel, like, professional, because we don't have a big budget, but, like, we're going to, like, save money where we need to to make these things happen you know and that's what we did and and carter just you know he killed it and he's up for a bunch of awards right now in the festivals so i want to talk about the festivals but before we do tell us a little bit about your background how do you, you come to this film with a great background as i mentioned earlier in terms of your work but give us a little bit more of that than my introduction to you because mine was was brief just uh, because i wanted to <laughs> no you, you were no it was, it was great no, so I came uh, from Chicago. I went to Columbia College Film School. I did three internships. Uh, and then on my third internship, it took me on to this daytime like soap opera that eventually brought me to L.A. It's called Starting Over. And then I kind of, <laughs> you know, it, it, and yeah, so, you know, about women in a house trying to like change their lives. And it went like three seasons. And then I stayed here and then started working on a bunch of different projects you know, I kind of really fell into the, I guess, reality base for a while because it's it's much more work, you know, back then. And it, it was kind of real. Now it's a little more staged. And here, talk about this. Um, and I did, you know, a lot of great shows like Driving Force, Intervention, Cops, you know, and those shows really helped pave the way and tell, you know, teach me how to like storytell. You know, because on Cops, I had to be the camera operator, I had to be the producer, I had to choose the cops I wanted to work with, I had to get the releases from all of the bad guys, and then I had to like put together a little package of here's the story that we shot, and here's the releases, and here's the hook, you know, and so it really helped me develop my storytelling skills, and then from there I kept doing more projects, and uh, Welcome to Sweetie Pies, and all these little other shows, but then one day I decided I'm not going to do that stuff anymore, I'm going to do commercials, I'm going to do corporates and documentaries. And then I kind of got into documentaries and I just did like um, Linda Perry documentary and did Mark Wahlberg uh, Wall Street documentary for an HBO Max. And I've done a bunch of stuff and then, you know, films here and there and, and other projects and uh, Doritos commercials. I mean, so much stuff and stuff for Netflix and Google and 
a James Brown documentary. And and then just I was like, I at one point was like, I just want to, you know, do the self-creator route like Stallone did on Rocky, where he wrote something and then he basically pitched it uh, you know, to the Winkler and as like, okay, well, here's the movie that I have, but I need to be in it. And that's kind of how I did with this. I wrote it and I'm like, well, I'm gonna direct it. So we're gonna make that happen. Do you think with technology where it is, in other words, we have advanced to the point where clearly we're, we used to be celluloid, now we're digital, and right. the equipment is getting smaller, lighter, or more flexible. Do you find that as a creator, it's easier for you to make, it, it's still costly, but is it easier for you to make your own films and, and your own projects? Well, I mean, it, you know, like I've helped people, like a lot of my friends uh, do projects, uh, and they, you know, we didn't spend very much money because we had all the equipment, you know, like you can do smaller stuff uh, very cheaply. Like I remember I helped my friend Patrick Dupree uh, do a music video with this band. Um, and I think we did it for a thousand dollars. You know, it's like I had the equipment. So I, I brought all the equipment, the lights and the camera and the lenses. And then we just had to pay people's food and lo location. And that was it. And you can do things for cheap. But when you're doing something where you have you know uh a certain level of actors like we have in our movie you know there's all these extra costs you have to pay uh you know these sag actors you know higher fees you got to sure. pay locations meaning if you want like great locations i mean standard location cost in la is two thousand dollars a day uh you know and you times that by 23 days you already have 50 grand almost but like we got some at a discount but like you know i think there's levels of uh production so you can do things on the fly and cheap i mean you can go to the salt and sea and, and film there for a couple hundred bucks for a permit um but you know like to do something at a higher level uh with a lot of production value it's like it, it costs money so there's always i think there's always going to be kind of like that youtube feel and then like the high-end feel there'll always be like this whole world of spectrum both you know uh the big and the small so i think it's always going to be there yeah, no, I understand exactly what you're saying. That dichotomy between what everybody can do now, thanks to technology, but when right. you raise the level, then that's additional cost and additional yep. talent too. In a, oh in yeah. Cases. I, okay, I have to go back to something you said. I, I couldn't <laughs> let it go. How do you convince the bad guys to sign a release form in cops? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's funny because that show is still going and I, I wrote a book about my experiences, you know, and I'm like, well, when the show is gone, I will probably release that book, you know, to the to the world. Um, so when I did the show, there was no training on how to, like, get a release. Like we, we had a week seminar in Santa Monica. You know, it's like you go out there and then you're told after a couple of weeks, you're going to get the release now. You, you work with somebody who's kind of senior and they get the release. And then they say, guess what? It's your turn now. And I'm like, I don't even know how to do that. So, you you know, there's like all kind of ways. There's ways where uh, to be transparent, you kind of like you talk to them as a person, you know, you don't judge them. You let you can either tell them that you work for the show uh, or you don't say anything. Say, hey, you know, here's here's this release. You want to be on the cop show, yada, yada. Or sometimes um you have to talk to the cops and say what can we do here because they don't want to go to jail what can you do and they they can say well i can i can cite them uh and and release them uh but they might go to jail later but just don't tell them that you know which i'll <laughs> say well here you know you sign the release 
you're not going to jail tonight. I'll say you're not going to jail tonight, but you might go later. But, you know, and then there's some times where you have to just really like talk to them. Like I remember one time I was in Sacramento and this, um, this girl with her kid, you know, her, her boyfriend, you know, like beat up both of them and it was horrible. And I, I, you know, I had to go there and we filmed the guy, he hit himself like upstairs in the attic and we found him and the dogs found him and got him down and arrested him. I talked to him and got his release, but then I talked to her and it wasn't just about getting the release. Like I barely even mentioned the show. Like I was almost like a, a grief counselor to her for that, like that 45 minutes and the cops kept coming in. Like, are you ready to go? Let's get, we got to go to a call. And I'm like, let me just talk to her because she needs help. You know, like right now she's struggling, she's crying. And like, I remember I talked to her and then like, I said, would you, Hey, look, I know like you're, you're having a hard time. I said, would you mind to sign this release? I said, it's going to help people who are going through what you're going through see this and like you know it's not right for someone to do this to you and she's like oh absolutely whatever you want me to do and then she goes can i just have a hug and i'm like yeah and it was like and it's like these are real people it's like you know and like that's the hard thing as a as a you know you want to do your job but like you have to treat them like they're real people and they are and it's like and it was like it's a powerful moment like i remember she had the cigarette she was holding in her hand and she would burn her fingers with it because she was still in shock and i had to take it out of her fingers you know and it's like there's all these things that i remember but it's like some people are very very willing to be on camera and, and some are not and and it's just like the things that you you kind of like live through on that show really impact you and um you know and i i've done stuff you know for documentaries where you know people that i know my friend's best friend my friend's uh brother was killed by the police and, you know, so I, I kind of have this resentment to some police here and there, you know, that there's some bad guys out there that are police officers, but then I also have this deep love for the cops because of what they do and what they deal with every day. But people judge them so harshly. It's like, you don't know what it's like out there to see the, the bad stuff that happens to people and children, especially out there. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens to kids that aren't shown on TV. So it's like, People are very judgmental, and I, 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 I feel for cops because I, like, I was out there for two years, and it really impacted me quite a bit. I think you bring that sensibility to your filmmaking now, and that, so that helped during that time you had on Cops really helped you along with your other experiences. What do you see as the future for Roswell of Delirium? It's making the rounds of the festivals, getting good reviews, great reviews. Are you going to release it on either streaming or in uh, theaters, or where, where do you see the, the film going? Well, I mean, right now we have three uh, screenings happening. We have we have uh, Chandler screening in two weeks on the 21st of January. There's one in L.A. on the 24th at the TLC Chinese Theater 6. And then there's one in Chicago in, in March. Uh, and I also have uh, a couple of companies I'm talking to now about uh, starting to shop it to the, the Amazon, the Netflix, the Paramount, the HBO, the Hulu world of streaming um and you know uh it's gonna take a few months but i think it's gonna have a home base by may june that's kind of like the the timeline but like we're very close to start shopping it um because of, of these new people that have come into the world after hearing of roswell and seeing the success it's had in the festivals because usually um i think we've gotten into like 15 festivals so far and and just like a two-month span so usually it doesn't happen that quickly 
and you know to keep winning awards and and being invited to more festivals so it's really gotten a lot of attention of people who want to bring this movie to the world so i think uh we're gonna have a home base in a few months here for for roswell for a few years well that's a great way to leave it my guest has been writer director richard bakewell whose new film roswell delirium takes us back to the 1980s when the u.s is hit by a wave of nuclear attacks and after the fallout those who remain pretend as if everything is normal, even though they're all experiencing radiation poisoning. There's much more to the film. For everything about Roswell Delirium, go to lightforcepictures.com, lightforcepictures.com, and you can follow the film on Facebook and Instagram. And Richard, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for our new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.